Good evening, everybody. Hope everyone's doing well. Hope everyone's staying safe, staying healthy out there. Once again, we are presenting you with a new episode of the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Seems like we've kind of turned a corner, at least in maybe some light at the end of the tunnel with this whole COVID-19 thing. Still not out of the woods yet. Still have a lot of questions that uh, need to be answered. But it seems like we're on the verge of the plateau or verge of the of the peak, I should say. And we'll see what next week brings us in terms of numbers of cases and, and uh, you know, rate of infection and all that scientific stuff that I'm sure all of us are glued to on the television, trying to get our info and reading and watching what's going on. But nevertheless, hopefully we are offering an escape for you. I know... We did five episodes last week. We're going to be doing more here because, hey, all we got is time on our hands and time to record. I'd like to bring in our next guest all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. He is the co-host of Growing Up Rock podcast. You can find him on Twitter at Growing Up Rock, G-R-O-W-I-N, Up Rock, and GrowingUpRock.com like to welcome in Stephen Michael. How you doing, Stephen? Hey, how's it going, Jay? Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you doing this. I've been a big fan of your podcast, you and Sonny. I had Sonny back on in, I think it was late December, early January, where we discussed Y&T, and that was a great show. You guys do a great job, and, and I'm happy to have you on. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again. We always ask the first question every time we have a new guest, and that is the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance, that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Well, I don't know if there was a specific song or moment for me. I'm not like uh, some people that I've talked to on our podcast that go, yeah, I was in the music when I was five years old. I don't really remember music when I was five years old. It was always around the house. Uh, but for me, it was probably more specific time. Uh, and that's the summer of 1981. Uh, I started hanging out with friends from high school and, uh, we started sharing music and this friend of mine who I basically spent the entire summer with, uh, playing wiffle ball. Are you familiar with wiffle ball? Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. So I had basically spent the entire summer with him. He had a pool in his backyard. We played wiffle ball and I remember him breaking out this, uh, piece of vinyl and he said, Hey man, have you heard this? And I said, uh, no. And he put it on and it was, uh, Van Halen's fair warning that was released in April of 81. And he dropped the needle on Mean Street, and that was it for me. Now, I'd heard Van Halen before then, but this is really the first album where it's like I got to sit with the whole record. And that that combined with uh, high school and the years in high school where you're just sharing music back and forth with your friends. I had one friend that drove to school and we used to ride with him and he had this amazing stereo in his car and uh, I can just remember blasting stuff so yeah that time period for me that's really uh, kind of what growing up rock is based on for me those are my growing up rock years you know yeah that there's a certain familiarity with everyone's story everyone's story is different but there's always some familiar points to everyone's story who's a rock fan you know there's that connection there's that you know once it pulled you in it has never let you go it will never let you go even when I venture off into other genres of music at certain points in my life I always come back to it sooner or later and that's the great thing about rock and roll because it kind of gets into your blood and you know once you're a rock fan you're a rock fan for life yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm a I'm a ridiculous music fanatic. So I like a lot of different music, but 
uh, I cut my teeth on hard rock and metal music and really that is what stuck with me and it's just reinvigorated my love for this music uh, starting the podcast and you know the podcast going into its fourth year at this point and so it's just become this whole like way of life for me basically it's interesting you know I've always loved talking music and I've always you know like having those conversations in a bar or at a barbecue where you know we talk about the old albums we talk about the music we had growing up and my son who's now in his teen years was obviously becoming more independent with his friends he wanted to hang out with his friends instead of his dad and I said well I need to get a hobby I need to figure something out to take up some time and I've always liked listening to podcasts whether it's a music podcast or whatever it was you know whatever subject matter that I enjoyed listening to people talk about and I decided to start the podcast and that was you know this past June or actually last June and this coming June will be my first year into it but it's just so fulfilling to talk to other rock fans such as yourself and others and do interviews with bands because it really is something that I enjoy I mean it doesn't feel like work or it doesn't feel the only thing that feels like work is the editing <laughs> that's what every podcaster says just about yeah I yeah I mean editing. I mean there's not there's no podcasters in my particular community my circle of podcast podcaster friends that haven't said the same thing which is basically we've created this podcast podcast because we were already doing this my friends and I were already doing this just not on a mic right and so they created the podcast initially that's kind of what it was for me when I first started the podcast but to be honest I've taken sort of a rebel's view of it uh, over the course of the past three or four years and said well you know what our music, this music that I love so dearly is dying a slow death and nobody is helping it. How do these bands get promoted? How do the bands that I grew up with get promoted? How do the bands that are new that are coming out get promoted? Radio's not helping out here. So why not podcast? Podcast to me are the the new um, carry the flag for hard rock and metal, uh, uh, you know, media outlets right now. And I would, I would encourage anybody who is looking to find new music or discover music from old to go discover podcasts, because it's not just my show. It's shows like yours and decibel geek and, Shout It Out Loudcast and all these other great podcasts that are out there that exist, um, you know, for that very reason. Agreed. I was really looking forward to the podcast, what do you call it, the trade show or whatever in Nashville coming up here in August that was just recently canceled. I was actually... Rock and pop. Yeah, I was actually looking forward to doing that because, you know, being someone that's new kind of wanted to learn more about what others are doing and the technology that people are using to help better the show. But you're absolutely right. You know, rock and roll, I fight this battle constantly on my show, talking about the state of rock and roll, talking about the relevancy of rock and roll. And it's funny how people get upset. It's funny how people slam their fists down when a hard rock, heavy metal act isn't chosen for the Super Bowl or the awards for rock and roll and heavy metal are not even on TV for the Grammys when they screw with us every year for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. People get mad and people get vocal, but it's like for a day or two. Then they go back to their, their about their business and they do nothing to change. They do nothing to help out the genre. I've been talking about the classic rock bands and how they tour every summer. You know, there's always these big tours. We have, you know, we have the Motley Crue, Def Leppard, 
tour this summer. Who knows if that's going to get canceled? My bet is that it will be. You have other tours as well. Every year, people flock to these tours, and that's great. That's awesome. They should go to want to. See, they should want to see their their heroes and their you know the music and the bands that they grew up loving. But where is the love and where is the interest in new rock? Because in about ten years, all those bands that people are going to see are going to be gone. There's going to be no more of it. And what are you going to do? Where are these bands going to be? Rock and roll will never die, but it will be like jazz. It'll be like in underground clubs. It'll be like, it it won't be relevant. And unless people start paying attention to it. Well, rock and roll hasn't been relevant in a long time, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, And it hasn't, it hasn't stopped or stifled the amount of great rock and roll coming out today. Uh, you and I both talk about it on our respective shows. There's a ton of great rock and roll coming out today. That being said, I have to point out, there's also a ton of great rock and roll that came out in the 80s that I, as a music fan, completely missed that I'm still discovering today. And I was a music fan back then. But there's stuff that I miss that I'm like, I'll hear somebody will post something on this band. I'll be like, well, what's this all about? And I'll listen to it. And I'll be like, this is amazing. They're like, yeah, this record came out in 1983. I'm like, really? I've never heard of these guys all the time. Yeah, I'm doing this current poll right now, or currently doing a poll right now with forgotten bands of the 80s. And it's interesting to see people's reaction to these bands that they had forgotten about or they never heard of. You know, whether it's Stone Fury or Hurricane or Icon or other bands like Warrior or Kick Axe or Helix, bands that we all listened to or most of us did and forgot about, or people like yourself who, for whatever reason, completely missed it when they were around. Yeah, I mean, I considered myself a pretty knowledgeable person when it comes to bands of the 80s. So, so like, the majority of bands that you just mentioned, in fact, all the bands you just mentioned, I've heard of those bands. I've, I've either own, I either own their records or I've heard of them. Stone Fury, I remember them. I had the record. I don't remember loving it. So Stone Fury was one of those bands. That was the guy from Kingdom Come. Wasn't Lenny in that band? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I got a lot of useless information like that in my head. But uh, those are bands I heard of. But there are bands that pop up that I'm like, I've never heard of this band in my life. There's this band that somebody posted called 220 Volt. And I'm like, okay. Never heard of them. Band, the record came out in the 80s. Fantastic. I mean, straight in my bang zone of rock and roll. Exactly what I like in rock and roll. You know, a nice fat guitar riff, a good 2-4 drum beat, you know, and vocals I can understand. I love it. That's that's the beautiful thing about music is it's a lot about timing too as well. Now, back in the day, you may have not paid attention to a band, you know, like the the 220 Volt that you just mentioned. And, you know... Years later, you you discover it, and it's like new music. I love when that happens. It even happens sometimes with an album that you had when you were a kid, and there was maybe a song or two on there that you really you really weren't a big fan of. But now, when you play it, it's an awesome song. You're like, "Wow, I, I never realized this song was that good." And a, a lot of it is about the mood you're currently in when you have that music, about what's going on in your life, your life experiences. So it's always important to revisit stuff that maybe you may not have been interested in when it first came out or when you had the record to as where now you're in a different place in your head, the song may be more appealing to you. Yeah, 100% agree. And that's also one of the things that causes uh, rock and roll music as a whole to struggle because nowadays people, there, there's a lost art of listening to an album. Uh, there's no, you know, it's, it's non-existent anymore. Back in the day you purchased an album, you lived with that album from start to finish. At least I did. And all of my friends did where you play the first track, you play the entire record 
and you live with it. I mean, you live with it for weeks, months, even years, and it you, it either sticks or it doesn't stick. Uh, and so that's that's a lost art now. Now it's a playlist or it's a, a song, and that's pretty much it. Or it is an album, and you try to listen to it, and by the time you get to the end of that album, 12 more albums were released. <laughs> Well, it has to do with the attention span, too, of the listener. I mean, we've even changed. I mean, you know, we grew up, and this is a great segue into the topic that we're going to discuss today. We grew up going to the record store, you know, and we sometimes didn't know if bands had a new album out because information was filtered to us differently. And, you know, we didn't have the access to everything being at our fingertips and knowing you know, the pre-order date of this album, when this album is going to come out and, you know, people, bands releasing singles two, three months before the album comes out. That never used to happen. I remember going to the record store and seeing albums by bands. I'm like, oh, wow, they got a new record out. Or I had never seen this record in their bin before. And it was a completely different way of digesting and experiencing music, which... Other genres, I think, have been able to adapt and move forward, where I think the rock and roll genre, the audience hasn't accepted the new ways of absorbing and, and digesting music. Yeah, there's there's a lot uh, that the rock and roll community has uh, not accepted, that has um, refused to accept, and I think a lot of that um, is playing a part in slowly but surely killing off uh, rock and roll from being a relevant source. And, you know, this is something that I'll go back and forth with a lot of various people on it. And it's just, you know, I don't know what it is with the old guard of rock and roll because I'm one of those people, but I also embrace technology and embrace new methods of getting, you know, my information and my music. And I think, I think that you can still go out and buy a piece of vinyl or buy a CD or buy physical product and still embrace the new way of doing things. Back in the day, I mean, for me, it was all hanging around record stores and reading magazines. That's how I got my information. There was no pre-order. You couldn't pre-order a record back in my day. Yeah, it was. it's very interesting to how things have changed. The record stores that I used to go to were, in, at least in my experience, growing up in my you know, early teens to late teens, it was an experience. It was something to do. You know, we, we, most of us worked part-time jobs when we were in high school. You know, I was a stock boy at a grocery store. And I get paid every week. Back then, back in the day, you got paid every week. And I remember going to record stores on Friday nights after I got off work because record stores in the Chicago area were open till 12, 1 o'clock, you know, midnight, 1 a.m. in the morning. So we'd leave work at 10 after we were done stocking the shelves and putting everything up. And we'd go to the record store. We'd grab a hot dog or a burger. And we'd go buy, it was tapes back then, we go buy a tape and we cruise around for the rest of the night listening to the new albums we all bought. It was, we would spend hours at the record store thumbing through vinyl, looking at the covers, looking at the back covers, just absorbing it. It was part of the experience. And then when we bought it after that night that we had with our friends with it, we would sit for the entire weekend in our room reading the liner notes looking more close, closely at the album cover and at the back cover, it became part of us. It became like we knew every song by Monday when we returned to school. You know, we knew who wrote this and who produced the album. Oh, did you see who he, they thanked on the, in the liner notes? All that stuff. That was all part of the experience. I think because rock and roll was so, so reliant on, on that experience, I think that it hasn't transitioned well with the new technology. Yeah, I think that there are um, 
I think that there are people that hang on to their vinyl or that purchase vinyl online or purchase physical product. Most of it are most of them are buying it online, but they refuse to embrace streaming or any of that type of stuff. And I just, I think overall it's hurting the genre. Um, my personal experience with record stores. So I grew up in a small town, which was a lot different than somebody like yourself. Uh, you said you grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot different than my experience. I grew up in a small town in the heart of the Bible belt for me. And I had to go to um, a mall because we had a mall and, and that was really the only record store for me was at a mall. And it was tape uh, cassettes, mostly uh, cassettes for me at the time and a little bit of vinyl as well. But we used to go to this, um, what, what was called a record bar. It was called the record bar at the mall on Friday, Saturday nights. And we would, we would hang around there and they would have, they had a magazine rack with Hip Raider Cream and Krang Magazine. And I would just read so much, just hanging out at the record store, getting all this information from like Krang Magazines and stuff. And then we would buy these cassettes and Record Bar at the time, they had this thing where they would give you this 30 day little sticker thing that basically said, hey, if the tape's messed up, um, you can bring the tape back and switch it out. Um, and we got to be friends with everybody at the record bar there and they knew us and we would go and we would try cassettes. And if it sucked, we'd bring it back, switch it out for a different, uh, cassette. And that's how we tried music back then. And we would find what we liked and what we didn't like, what we liked, we held on to what we didn't like. We'd trade it out and you know they knew what we were doing but they embraced it and uh we kind of paid them back uh every year with uh helping out do uh inventories they used to have to do physical inventories once a year uh which was an overnight thing and we would we would sign on to do those physical inventories and count products and all that stuff but that's how i learned a lot about uh, the music and, and why I was able to try so much music for a reasonable cost. Cause I mean, I was a kid, I didn't have a bunch of money, you know, it was whatever allowance the parents were given or whatever side jobs that we had where we earned a little bit of cash. And here I thought you were a shower curtain salesman in, in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> along with the other numerous jobs that I've uh, held. Yeah, I was uh, a shower curtain salesman uh, in the state of Illinois. Funny, funny. I think I got that from trains, planes, and automobiles, as a matter of fact. <laughs> All right. I, I, yeah, because I, I heard the, the podcast the other day, and I'm like, oh, wow, he used to sell shower curtains. I'm like, is there any money in that? Like, how do you make money selling shower curtains, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's what John Candy was in Planes, Trains, You're and right. Automobiles. You're absolutely right. Curtain salesman. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is, is that my entire family is from Chicago. Oh, cool. I'm not. I was the only Southern-born baby. Well, I'm sure you had a lot of visits up here to Chicago then. Oh, still do. I still have a lot of family in the area. That's awesome. That's awesome. But what you talk about is, is interesting because... I remember going to the mall as well. We had Woodfield Mall by our house, which was, and we used to take the bus there. And, you know, we wouldn't go to any other store besides the store that sold the posters and the record store. That was what we would do for three hours. We would just hang out at the record store. We'd be looking at different albums. And like you said, the magazines were really big too with, with giving you all the information. It just seemed like at a moment in time, that was the place to be if you were a teenage boy. I mean, there weren't too many girls hanging out at the record store. It was mostly a teenage boy thing. But you learned a lot. I mean, you, you had a lot of different experiences. You saw a lot of different types of people at the record store. You know, the, you see a guy walk in with a mohawk on or 
you know, some death metal shirt or another rock and roll shirt like you had on or whatever. But it became like a rite of passage. It became what you looked forward to every week. You, you craved music. And here's the other thing, too, that's different, right, is now we buy so much music online at once, you know, whether we're just clicking download, download, and it's just deducting $1.99 every time we buy or we go on Amazon and we buy three or four albums. One was enough. Like, you know, you didn't make that much money where you could afford to buy three, four albums at a time. So you bought one album, and that would last you for a good month or two. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I had – there are specific memories in record stores that I can remember and tie back to certain albums or certain bands, uh, you know, and my discovery of those bands. What was your fondest memory? I mean, you talked about the inventory, you talked about all that stuff. What was your fondest memory of your your favorite record store? Well, I mean, I discovered so much of the, you know, new wave of British heavy metal through Krang magazine. You know, Krang wasn't something that was readily available here in the States. But the record store that I went to, the record bar, like I said, they would get these imports. And one of the imports was Krang magazine. And so I elevated my game being able to tie into that whole world you know for me uh I, I don't know how old you are jay but i mean i'm 53 going on 54 so you know 80 81 82 that's like the height of the new wave of british heavy metal and that really i mean that really catapulted me into this genre of music i mean before then in the late 70s when I was really young before high school in the late 70s and everything it was you know it was Cheap Trick and uh, Bay City Rollers and and just different stuff like that I, I wasn't really sold on any one genre even though my brothers and sisters were much older and we had Deep Purple Zeppelin the Beatles Jethro Tull that type stuff hanging around the house uh, but my, you know, my memories being around that record store, I can, I can tell you there's, <laughs> there was one time in particular where I walked into this record store and there was an end cap and the end cap had two records, both of them black covers, basically black covers with red writing on them for the most part. Both of them came from this record label that I'd read about called Megaforce Records. One of them was Metallica's Kill 'Em All, and one of them was Raven's All for One. I bought both of those albums and have been a fan of both of those bands ever since. And that was that was before Metallica even was signed by Elektra. I mean, the 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 album was on Megaforce Records, you know. So just things like that. I I. Uh, have such fond memories of stuff like that you know yeah i do too because it was the experience i still remember seeing the cover of iron maiden albums and how you know being a young kid i'm 45 so i remember 1981 1982 me being six seven years old and seeing these covers seeing my neighbor's wall with the huge number of the beast poster and being a little freaked out but also being really captivated by it and really being really interested in wanting to know what the band sounded like and what they were about. That was part of the experience was the album covers, right? The album covers kind of drew you in. They kind of sucked you in to see what they were all about. And then you'd look at the back album cover. Most of the time it was a picture of the band. You got to see what they look like and you got to see the song titles. And sometimes you're like, well, I don't know if this song you know, such and such is going to be good because it's called this. You had no idea what the song song sounded like, but it was just interesting the way we processed it. You know, we went to the store, we went to the record store wanting to buy maybe the new Kiss album or Van Halen or whatever it was, and then we'd be captivated by something else because the album cover looked really, really cool. And you mentioned the new wave of British heavy metal. I still remember 
bands like Saxon, I remember their albums being pretty prevalent in the record store. I remember bands like Tokyo Blade and what was the other one? Tank being really prevalent because, you know, Tank had this really cool black and yellow logo with like this makeshift tank or whatever. And it was really cool. And all that stuff in the early 80s, if you look at the style of music and the way that music was produced, it was very primitive. It was very raw. You know, there wasn't, it wasn't about the image back then. It was about the music and it was obviously very guitar driven. But then you had these cool album covers that were, I mean, think about all that stuff like in the early 80s from your Y&T, Black Tiger, Mean Streak albums to, you know, the Saxon albums and all those new wave of British heavy metal albums always had cool album covers. But it was just, there was just something about the way everything was produced back then that made it part of the experience. Yeah, I mean, people associate the 80s with glam and hair metal. And, and honestly, for those of us that were there, 80s, uh, you know, the glam and, and hair metal stuff didn't really come into um, play until the late 80s. 80, 81, the golden age of rock and roll for me as a 53-year-old today, the golden age of rock and roll was, you know, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84. That's when all this stuff was coming about, you know, the Iron Maidens, the Saxons, the, you know, Kiss had already beyond their heyday a little bit and Aerosmith, same thing, sort of beyond their heyday. But all that stuff was still around, you know, Judas Priest with, uh, with, you know, British Steel and Screaming for Vengeance and Defenders of the Faith. I mean, my first concert, first of all, I had to travel an hour to two hours away from my home just to go to a concert and my first concert was Diver Down's uh, you know Van Halen Diver Down tour in 1982 I guess it was that was my first concert I mean I, I distinctly be I remember being uh, you know three people deep in front of Edward Van Halen when that spotlight hit him for the opening of Romeo's Delight I mean are you kidding me to, to an impressionable young teenager, that was all she wrote, man. <laughs> well, that's interesting that you say that because growing up outside of Chicago, we had this thing called On TV, which was pre-cable. And basically what it was was like this box, but it was about the size of like a, a cracker box. And it had, a, it had a silver knob on it. It had regular TV and then it had On TV. And early in the mornings when we would, my, my brother and I would be getting ready for school, we would hurry up so we could watch a couple videos before our mother took us to school. So we'd see all these early videos in the early 80s, you know, whether it was, you know, Van Halen, Pretty Woman, or, you know, the early Motley Crue stuff, or the or Priest, and all these really cheesy, you know, videos that we see now. But then in the summer of 83, they, they broadcasted, the U.S. Festival from California. And it was really the first time I had seen anything like that on television. It was the first time I actually had seen these bands that I had been listening to. Motley Crue, Quiet Riot, Triumph, Ozzy, Priest, Scorpions, and Van Halen. So when Van Halen hit the stage um, late at night, we, had, my brother and I had been watching this concert all day long. It was such a huge had such a huge impact on our lives. And when Van Halen came on, they opened up with Romeo Delight, because I still think it was the Diver Down tour. Um, it was just, that was the first time I saw David Lee Roth, like, perform. I saw him in videos, but it was the first time I saw him perform, and it was just electric. The whole, the whole day was electric. Seeing these bands that I had heard or seen their videos and seeing them on stage play, Scorpions was phenomenal. Triumph was phenomenal. I think this was the first concert with Jakey e. Lee after he replaced Randy Rhodes, or actually Brad Gillis. But um, it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal moment in my life. Watching that show just had a profound effect on me as I moved forward in my rock and roll journey. It made me even more resilient, made me even more of a fan of the music that I was falling in love with. 
you mentioned the Van Halen concert in 82 for the Diver Down Tour. Was that the moment, like, where it was it was basically set in stone that this was it for you? I mean, this was this is what it was going to be. Yeah, I think it probably happened a little bit before that, but being able to go to my first concert, my first concert being to that magnitude, that certainly solidified a lot because once I was able to break free of, you know, my parents and everything and go to this concert, because I went to this concert with a bunch of friends from school, that sort of, you know, I mean, the very next concert we went to was Judas Priest. (laughs) So, you know, all the concerts that I went to at that point in time, it was like Van Halen, Judas Priest, you know, Def Leppard, Billy Squire, Stick. That was, those were the concerts I was going to see. And so, yeah, that just solidified everything for me and, you know, being able to Another another thing that happened that was um, pretty paramount in my becoming a rock fan and it sticking was, and this is, you know, this is related to record stores, is that I told you we had this mall and we had this corporate record store that was the record bar in the mall. Well, somewhere midway through my high school years, this British couple, this um, lady and her husband opened up a independent record store out back of the mall at this sort of like strip. Um, I guess it was a strip mall. It was just, you know, a, a strip of three or four different stores. Well, they opened up an independent record store and they bought in tons of imports so you were able to get imports in their record store and they were cool because they were british and you know they knew uh all kinds of different things and they were real music fans right because they were opening up their own independent record store so that uh also helped solidify me and my experience at record stores what was it like growing up in the environment that you grew up in you said you mentioned you mentioned that you grew up in the bible belt in a small town how did that affect your access to music based on the surroundings that you were living in well it was tough because you know it wasn't like living in a big city like i said we had to go an hour to two hours outside of town just to go to a concert at the time because uh, they eventually they built an arena in this town but at the time uh, when I was in high school they didn't have an arena so you had to travel and you know there was only one semi-rock radio station and you know a couple of record stores so I can remember going to the mall and being dressed in concert t-shirts and studs and bandanas and really being accosted by people that were, you know, from the Bible Belt. (laughs) Basically, people telling me that, you know, I was going to burn in hell. And and the thing about it is, is that I was raised in a Catholic family. Like, my family's Catholic. I'm Catholic. That's how I was raised. And so there was a portion of me that was one foot inside that world and one foot inside the world of being a youth that loved music and hard rock music in particular. The first Iron Maiden record for me was Killers. I bought that record because of the album cover. So when Number of the Beast came out, I was really reluctant because I was like, uh... 666, yeah, I, I don't know, you know. I mean, it was an, a little bit of an internal struggle there for a little while, but, you know, it's all good. I grew up Catholic. I was I was raised Catholic. I just had Joey Casada on the show a couple weeks ago. He wrote this book called Start With a Dream, 
It's a great book. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, I, I strongly suggest you do because there is so much that you will connect with on growing up and what you had to experience that's in his book about going to the record store and listening to music. It really is a book that defines what it was like to be young back in those days. But him and I were talking about, because he grew up in a Catholic family and, and I did, how we had to like smuggle music into my house, or at least I did. You know, I mean, I had to smuggle Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue. I had to smuggle Bark at the Moon by Ozzy Osbourne, Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast. I mean, it was, you know, and if, I, and if my mom found the album in my room, she'd throw it in the trash. And it happened on a couple of different occasions. So I was constantly navigating through, you know, going to Catholic school every day and going to religion class to going home and listening to the hard rock records, heavy metal records that I was listening to, hiding them from my parents. It was, it, the, the, the struggle was real, as they say, right? <laughs> but it, yeah. it was. So that's where you and I, that's where you and I differ just a little bit in our upbringing. So I was raised Catholic and I come from a Catholic family. The difference between you and I is that you went to Catholic school. I went to public school. And I went to a public school that, for the most part, was fairly rough because, I'll be honest, I was in the minority in this uh, in this public school. So I think there is something to be said about that difference, right? I didn't – my parents were never – like, they wouldn't have thrown an album, uh, Iron Maiden album, in the um, trash. My parents were really good. Like, I, I plastered my room with posters. I mean – ceiling on down so other than you know being sort of the black sheep of the family and maybe an eyebrow raise nobody really like my parents weren't really they didn't ban any of that stuff I guess is what I'm trying to say I had my walls covered with posters too however I had to be very selective with what I put on the wall I couldn't have any like evil imagery or I remember when I put up the Motley Crue Shout at the Devil poster and it had the pentagram on it. And what I did was I, I put it on the door that you would enter my room. So it would be on the back of the door so my parents would never see it. And it wasn't until like three months in or two months in that my mother was having a conversation with me in the bedroom and I remember I remember thinking she's going to turn around and she's going to see that poster and it's going to be it you know I'm like I, I'm like and I kept looking at the poster while she was talking to me I'm like well it was it was great while it lasted and sure enough she turned around saw the Motley Crue poster that said shout the devil with the pentagram and she just immediately took it down it was uh it was it was those struggles that helped carve my personality as it is today yeah, well, that's, you know, that's like you said, struggle is real. Do you remember that they used to broadcast concerts too? Like I remember hearing Judas Priest in concert on the radio. I remember hearing Kiss in concert, Motley Crue in concert on the radio, like late at night. They would broadcast yeah. these concerts from like L.A. or something like that. Yeah, they had uh, the King Biscuit Flower Hour is yeah. what they had when I was growing up. So there were two things that I remember specifically listening to on the radio. One was the King Biscuit Flower Hour where, like you said, they would broadcast concerts. But they were never, uh, I, my recollection was they were never in it in their entirety. It was usually like maybe 40 minutes or a half hour or an hour. It was never everything. Uh, and then the other thing that I remember a lot was um, – Bob Coburn's rock line, uh, where every Monday night, uh, late at night, they would interview a band and it was, it seemed like 90% of the time it was always somebody great, like Van Halen or Def Leppard or Bob Coburn's rock line. That's, that's, I think what it was called. I took my son to a record store about four or five years ago and he was probably about 10 or 11 years old. I remember going, driving, and he's like, where are we going? Like, we're going to go to a record store. Because he was really into the Foo Fighters at the time. 
and I wanted to, the Sonic Highways record came out, and I wanted to get him that and take him to a record store and have him experience that. And I remember him going, what do you mean? They they just sell music there? They just sell records? And I'm like, yeah, that's all they sell there. They sell, you know, it's magazines and mostly music and some paraphernalia like posters or hats or shirts. So we got there, and he loved it. I mean, he loved thumbing through the CDs and, and looking at that. And I still think that that can impact the youth of America today because I do see his reaction to that. You know, whether it's seeing the Iron Maiden albums, like just like I used to when I was a kid, or seeing album covers the way they're presented now on a CD or now vinyl's coming back, so there's a vinyl section. I do think that the youth would really like that. I just don't think they're ever really given a chance to be exposed to it. Yeah, I mean, there's still... I know here in town we have, you know, two or three record stores that are primarily vinyl. Uh, and, I, you know, I know that vinyl stores are here and there in each city. So, I mean, I think that they still have that opportunity to a point. But Yeah, it just seems like the attention span, you know, they've been trained to click download play, basically. Whereas, you know, when you go to a record store, there's some thought involved in it. You know, you've got to make your way around the record store. You've got to look at and take in the image as it's presented to you physically as you're holding it. And I think that's really where the difference is, is that holding it versus downloading it. There's a huge difference in how you appreciate it and how you absorb it. I agree with that 100%, but it's all about the the bucks and that's the quickest way that they can separate you from your money, right? Push a button. That's why, that's why nobody uses cash anymore. Just swipe a card. It's quick. It's easy. There's no connection there. There's no connection with, uh, you know, pushing a button for download or, uh, swiping a card with uh, a purchase. So you tend to spend more money that way. At least that's what the, uh, corporate people tell me well no i think that's i think that's true think about how when you have think about when you have a pocket full of cash versus your card your bank card you know when you you know how much cash you have in your pocket so you know when you go somewhere i'm like i've got this much money to spend whereas when you just have your card it feels like it's infinite you know it's at some point you know there is a limit to what you're going to be spending but it's just different the way you perceive things and the way you view it. Whereas, you know, I, I always, whenever I go to go to a show, I take cash with me specifically so I don't overspend. You know, if I went there mm-hmm. with a card, I would just be like, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. Whereas I know if I only have a certain amount of cash, I'm only going to spend that money that I've allocated for that experience. Yeah, 100%. I mean, 100% for sure that stuff you know i mean it's just i i have a very specific way of doing things in today's age versus when i was you know 16 years old 16 years old i told you go to the record store read the magazines pick out the stuff i wanted go live with it for a few days drive around my friend's car blasting stereo cruising the mall on friday and saturday nights eventually get to see that favorite band in concert and your fandom is solidified nowadays it's you you don't have any of that so nowadays there's no filter from the record company so there's a million bands putting out a million albums every week so a band like let's just say um well i'll use i'll use van halen's a different kind of truth is a is a great example Different kind of truth came out. I'm a huge Van Halen fan. Obviously, that was my first concert. They're probably, I hate to, to rank my favorite bands, but they're definitely in the top 10, the original Van Halen. So different kind of truth comes out. I think that record's a really solid record. Like, I think it's a really good Van Halen record. Is it better than one or two or three? I, I don't know about all that. But it's a good, solid rock record. I didn't get to live with that record very long before, you know, a million things come out. So 
I wasn't purging that record like I would have Fair Warning or Women and Children First or something like that. You know, it just didn't, I didn't get to live with that record, but I go back to it every so often as a music fan and listen to it now. And I stand by the fact that I think it's just a good solid rock record, you know, but you just don't have that opportunity. The way I go about things now, I discover new music through Spotify. I don't, I'm not ashamed to stream music. I'll, I'll discover something, but then I'll go buy it if I really like it. I'll live with it on Spotify for a few weeks. I'll eventually go purchase it. And by purchasing it, it's just convenient. And uh, I don't have a ton of storage space at my house. We don't have a ton of closets. So I'll buy the download of it, you know. Uh, do I miss having that physical product and that album to look at and those liner notes to look at? I do a little bit, but I just don't have the space, bottom line. <laughs> You're right. Things do come at us a lot faster now. You know, there's people or bands releasing singles three months before the album comes out or two months before the album comes out, and then they'll release another one like a month before. So as these new albums are trickling out, then these singles are are also out there too as well. So it it does it it divides your attention that you would normally use to just absorb a record and live with an album. I think that's one of the biggest differences. Like Richie Kotzen's Fifty for Fifty came out in the early part of February, and all I listened to that all I listened to for two weeks was that record. It's a phenomenal record, but at the same time, you know, there was, there, there's things getting put out and there's things that you want to listen to. It's really hard to devote your attention to the album that is currently in your possession or, you know, the one that you were looking forward to. And it affects just how you think of it. We used to listen to records through and through all the way through up and down. And there was no filler right? Like none of the songs were filler. They were all solid. Like 10 songs on Women and Children First, they were all great. 10 songs on an Aerosmith record, they were all great. You know, 10 songs on this or whoever, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, they were all great. Now it's like they're, you know, bands are trying to get as much ter- material out as possible because people's attention spans are not as long as they used to be. So yeah. they have to stay in front of people. And sometimes the quality of the music is affected by it. Yeah, that's uh, one of my pet peeves uh, more recently, I'll be honest with you. Back in the day, for me, most records were somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 38 minutes long. That was a record, for the most part, right? For hard rock and metal and pop metal, I'll call it, most songs run somewhere in the neighborhood of three minutes long, three, three and a half minutes long, unless you're, you know, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and you're running 13 minutes long or whatever that song is mm-hmm. at the time. But all the rest of the Maiden stuff back then was fairly, you know, short and to the point. But nowadays, I think because bands are producing themselves more and more where there's no, you know, they're not dishing out the money for a producer there a lot of bands are producing themselves it's do-it-yourself type stuff now records are 60 minutes long 68 minutes long and the songs are five minutes plus and for a hard rock pop metal tune it does not need to be five minutes long that's a waste of time for, for that type of music. If you're a progressive metal band or something like that, and you're doing, you know, opuses and <laughs> epic songs, then okay, do what you do. Uh, but that's never been my bang zone other than Rush. Um, you know, I like the nice three, three and a half minute song. Give me a great bridge, uh, a good course and a solid riff and I'm on it. And so that's been a pet peeve. Like, I had a lot of friends that absolutely love this record by a band called the defiance. They're a, um, 
sort of a new hard rock band. Got some, I think some of the guys from Danger Danger in the band and a couple things like that. But every song on that record's five minutes plus. And it's like, seriously, for a, a pop power hard rock band, you do not need five minute tunes. And I do not have the attention um, for it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely one with attention deficit disorder when it comes <laughs> to that stuff. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I like both. I like the quick, you know, song with the good hook and the good chorus and the melody. And I also like the journey of like a rhyme of an ancient mariner, a rush song or a Metallica song. I, I could, you know, I mean, if a song's four to six minutes and it's captivating and it holds my interest, I mean, there are songs that, that I do love that I wish were longer. You know, that's one of the things that, like, I'm like, oh, I wish that song was longer because it's so awesome. But I get what you're saying. There's a great new band out of Georgia called Tuck Smith and the Restless Hearts. That if yep. you, you love Tuck. Oh, yeah. Obviously, he was in Biters, which was another great band. But yep. uh, his new stuff is is really really good, and it's along the lines as you know that that you like that that power pop rock, you know three yep. th- three and a half minutes long. Tuck, Tuck and I are friends. Uh, he's obviously he's a local guy, and uh, if you go back to I don't remember what episode it was of one of the earlier episodes, I think of Grown Up Rock. But Tuck and I spent the day at a dog uh, park. Uh, out back of a coffee shop and he and I just talked and uh, you know got a little bit of his growing up rock story and hung out and it's a really good interview he's a really honest guy and uh, you know it's just uh, I I like Tuck I I think he's a great songwriter I think uh, you know obviously the biters I love the biters but this new stuff he's doing with uh uh, you know, just kind of his solo thing with the uh, restless hearts is, is good as well. So I just think he's a, a good writer period. Yeah. He's a great dude. I had him on the new music spotlight, just a really good story, really good guy, uh, great music. I love, you know, whenever I listen to his music, especially the newer stuff, I hear a lot of cheap trick and thin Lizzie and, and, uh, you know, a lot of T-Rex in it. Um, it's just great the way he fuses all that together. Yeah. Yeah, he's really, uh, in my opinion, he's one of the up-and-coming artists to really look out for. Yeah, there's a lot of bands. I mean, I hear you talk about bands that I've still yet to discover. And, uh, you know, I know that there's a lot of stuff like myself and Sonny have basically been catapulted into the, you know, Nordic, you, uh, you know, the Nordic region of bands, uh, all these Swedish hard rock bands and Finnish hard rock bands that are coming out today. They're just, I mean, they're really producing some fantastic stuff right now. I love the band heat. They're fan. They're fantastic. Oh, oh my God. I'm telling you right now. And, and we'll, we'll be doing an episode basically dedicated to heat at some point, but Sonny and I caught them on the latest monsters of rock cruise. Sonny and I have, have uh, last year we went for the first time. It was Sonny's second, uh, but it was my first. And we went again this year and have booked next year as well. But this year they had heat. And the entire time leading up to it, you know, we'd heard from a lot of our friends, oh, don't miss this band. You got to see this band. Really, really good live. Really, really good live make sure you see them. So I said, okay, well, you know what? I'm 53 years old, but I'm going to approach this as a 16 year old kid. So I went to the first show that was in this, um, what they call studio B, uh, on the ship. And it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's basically the same as a small club. And so I went and I said, let me go down front. I'm going to get in the crowd. I'm going to approach this just like a 16 year old kid. And that, band came out and it was unbelievable i haven't felt or witnessed a live show like that with that much energy with the crowd just going nuts in i don't know how many years i can't tell you how many years it's been since i felt that and 
it was unbelievable. And I said, well, it's got to be a fluke. Each band plays twice. Let me let me see if it was a fluke. And, and the following night, they were playing a much bigger stage uh, out on the deck uh, by the pool. So I said, well, let, you know, I talked to Eric, the singer, in between. And I said, you know, you guys were amazing. I've never seen, um, you know, that much energy coming off the stage. I said, but now you got to play this bigger stage and this pool stage you know, how, how do you think that's going to fare? And, uh, he just, he looked at me, smiled and he said, challenge accepted. That's exactly what he said to me. And damned if they didn't deliver on the pool stage, this band live is so amazing. I can't say enough good stuff about it. Sonny and I are both heat freaks at this point. We've gone back and discovered all this material. One of the best live bands I've ever seen, period. Yeah, I, I've heard good things, and I discovered them probably fall of last year when they released a single for their new album, and I loved it because it was very reminiscent of the of the music. It had big hooks and, and great melody, and it was just awesome. And I saw that they were playing at the Monster Rock Cruise. I didn't go, obviously, but I would have loved to have seen them. Sounds like they're they're the act to see. Without a doubt. I mean, they're... they're um they were worth the price of the cruise. I looked at my wife and I said, that was worth the price of the cruise. Cause the cruise is not cheap. Uh, I think when you do the math and everything and the amount of bands and the way that they treat you and the interaction you have with the artist, it is worth the price you pay, but you got to be able to pay that price. And for us, we just look at it as, Hey, we're, you know, breaking it down, per show what you're paying per show and uh you know it's a nice vacation obviously you get the nice room and you get the they feed you and all that other stuff and it's great uh so the the experience as a whole uh cannot be matched in my opinion and that's why we've gone back for uh three years now uh running and just it's been an amazing time the community of people uh, because you're on a ship with all these rock fans that just, they're like you and I in terms of they grew up with this stuff. They love this stuff and they can talk uh, not only the old school stuff, but they can talk about all these new new bands. And part of the thing that sells me on it is that they bring, you know, usually three or four bands from Europe that I'm never going to see here in the States. Uh, because they just don't ever come here to play in the States, you know? So bands like Heat or Eclipse or, uh, you know, Shiraz Lane last year and Gotthard uh, is Crazy another one. Licks next year. Gotthard What's is that? An, Gotthard's another band too as well that, that I really like. Gotthard's another one. I yeah. love Gotthard. Yeah. Uh, great band. Uh, and, you know, I hope, they'll come on the cruise at some point, but yeah, just that their, their new records are really good. Well, Steven, it's been a blast. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and doing it. I love, I'm a big fan of growing up rock. I do, uh, love listening to you and Sonny. So it's been uh, a treat to have you on. Jay, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for all you're doing for rock and roll. I love the hook rocks and, uh, We'll have to get you over there on Growing Up Rock at some point in time. So, uh, once again, thanks. It's been an honor. Thanks for having me. would love to do it. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Uh, once again, this is Jay Scott of the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. We will talk again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 